In 2001, a man named Sai Tao sets up a big tent in the parking lot of a grocery store in St. Paul, Minnesota. He puts 50 easels inside the tent, and on the easels, he puts 50 paintings. Tao has spent more than 10 years painting the entire history of the Hmong people, his people, from their original homeland in China to their resettlement in Minnesota. And now, outside a grocery store in Frogtown, a neighborhood where many Hmong have settled, hundreds of people come to see this history. People who have never seen their history like this before and people who have no idea what this history is. It's partly a secret history of a secret war. Images of warplanes and villages on fire, men digging their own graves and children playing in a refugee camp. But few visitors probably realize what's happening in painting number five early in the series a huge fleet of ships crossing the ocean with Hmong sailors, a reference to the legendary voyages of Shu Fu, a sorcerer supposedly sent by the Chinese emperor to find the Fountain of Youth more than 2,000 years ago. For centuries, scholars have debated what happened to Shu Fu and the thousands of virgin boys and girls he allegedly took with him to settle whatever elixir-producing place they found. Legend has it that they found Japan, that Shu Fu became Japan's first emperor, and there are monuments and temples to Shu Fu all over the country. But there's supposedly been no evidence for any of it, nothing to suggest he made it to Japan or even existed at all. And yet, in a painting in a grocery store parking lot in Minnesota, based on an oral history unknown to most of the world, Sai Tao says, yes, it's all true. Shufu did exist. He did find Japan. You just never asked. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, a story of truth and legend, fact and belief, and the secret histories all around us. I'm Tim Gehring. Let's say it's the 2nd century BCE, about 
200 years before the birth of Christ, and you're the first emperor of China. Now, by the time you're 38, you've united all the warring states of China into one country. Sure, it involved war and torture and supposedly the burying of scholars alive. But hey, you did it. You've also built the Great Wall of China, linking all these different fortified states together. And you've created a mausoleum the size of a city, with an entire army of warriors made of clay to guard it. In other words, you're running out of ideas. You've done just about everything one person can get away with 2,000 years ago, which is plenty. In fact, you've started calling yourself the immortal. Like you're not even really a person. You're a god. Of course, you know you're not immortal. You're getting older every day. Death is coming even for you. And you hate the idea. So, for your last great act, you begin searching for the elixir of life. Three times you visit Shifu Island, a supposedly magical place in search of the elixir. Many times people tell you they have the elixir, but they don't. And then you run into a very, very, very old man who invites you to meet him at another island, a place no one's ever seen before. So, you call in your court sorcerer, Shu Fu, and you tell him, Hey, I met a guy. He's a magician. He's a thousand years old. He says to meet him on this island of Penglai, which no one's ever seen. Take 60 boats and, I don't know, 3,000 virgins and go find him. Oh, and when you see him, tell him to give you the elixir of life. Well, you don't need to be an emperor to want the secret of life. But you probably need to be an emperor to send 3,000 people to go look for it. And Shufu is looking hard. Because he knows he's not going to live another day if he comes back empty-handed. Of course, there is no island of Penglai, right? So after a long time at sea, Shufu returns. And he says, look, I, I'm pretty sure I know where it is but it's being blocked by this enormous sea monster. Get rid of the sea monster, and I'll get the elixir. The emperor does get rid of a sea monster. He sends out a team of archers who kill a huge fish. And then he says, Okay, Shufu, get out there. So, Shufu leaves again. And this time, he doesn't come back. (music) 
Let's go back even further, maybe 5,000 years ago, when the Hmong people are living in China, around where Beijing is today. And then the Han Chinese push them out, and the Hmong begin their great migration. Over thousands of years, the Hmong move further south and further south as the Chinese keep expanding and pushing them out. Until eventually, by the 1600s, they're not in China at all, but Southeast Asia. Laos and Thailand and Vietnam and Myanmar. Living in remote mountain villages where no one will bother them. But people do, right? First, the French in the 1950s who recruit the Hmong to fight the communists in Vietnam. And then the Americans who do the same. Sai Tao's family is in Laos in the 1960s when the CIA arrives to recruit them. While the Vietnam War is raging next door, thousands of Hmong are trained to fight in the so-called secret war against the communist insurgents trying to take over Laos. In 1975, when the war is lost, Tao's family decides to flee from Laos. It isn't much of a choice, really. With the U.S. pulling out, the Hmong are being left behind, to be slaughtered, basically, by the communists. Tao's family manages to cross the Mekong River into Thailand, where they live in a refugee camp. And then, in 1980, they come to Minnesota. Tao grows up in North Minneapolis and the northern suburbs, becomes an Eagle Scout, and earns his way into Morris, a fairly selective public university out among the cornfields of western Minnesota. But the war has left deep scars on Tao and other Hmong immigrants, and few Americans know it in 1990, when Tao arrives at Morris. Even in Minnesota, where thousands of Hmong refugees have settled. Tao's art professor at Morris is surprised when Tao tells him the history of the Hmong people, the violence and the tragedy and secrecy. So, that year, Sai Tao begins painting the history of Hmong involvement in the secret war. He paints in a simple illustrative style, like the story tapestries woven by Hmong women to pass down history. Or like Guernica, the Picasso painting about the German bombing of Spain, which Tao was thinking about a lot. How to make the violence a little easier to digest, more symbolic than gory. Tao makes ten paintings like this, and then he decides to keep going until he's made the 50 paintings he calls the Hmong Migration and sets up his tent in the grocery store parking lot to display them.
Within a year, Tao is not only an artist, he's a politician, serving in the Minnesota House of Representatives. In fact, he's only the second Hmong elected official in the country. Tao had been in the middle of painting his series in 1998 when he was drawn into politics. The Hmong community was at a crossroads. A popular radio host on a local station had made racist comments on the air after a teenage Hmong girl in Wisconsin was accused of killing her baby. Hmong people protested, the young ones anyway, and Tao was among them. He helped lead a voter registration drive in the Hmong community, which had not been politically active. Older Hmong were scared after being kicked out of Laos and so many other places that they'd be kicked out again if they caused trouble. Quote, they didn't want us to raise hell, Tao told me, and get kicked out of Minnesota, too. But people Tao's age wanted to have their say. They were done just trying to blend in. A few years ago, I decided to call Sai Tao almost 20 years after he first displayed the series, to see what he's up to, what he remembers of those days. He says he was about midway through his political career, which ended in 2010, when he and his wife decided to go into business, opening an elder care facility for Hmong women in St. Paul. His wife's grandmother had been getting on in years, and there was no appropriate facility for a woman who didn't speak English and had eaten mostly Hmong food her entire life. They expanded the business again and again, and when I reach him, they had just sold the business and moved to Florida, where they hoped to open other facilities in the southeast, possibly in Georgia. But the Hmong migration series is still fresh in his mind. He says he wanted to, quote, teach Hmong kids about their own culture and to teach non-Hmong about what we'd done. And he did. In 2004, the entire series was shown at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, which acquired the paintings. A book was made of the paintings, which found their way onto YouTube and everywhere else. I kind of just let the images go out into the universe, he tells me. And now things are different, he says. He has friends who are football fans and deer hunters. We're not trying to figure out how we fit anymore, he says. We're secure in ourselves. The series is something of a time capsule now. Not just of Hmong history, but the time when Tao painted it, the 1990s, when the Hmong were trying to find their place in a new place. Of course, the story is still intensely personal. Tao breaks down talking about the tenderness of trying to fit in. And the paintings themselves, the two guys digging their own graves, those guys are my uncles, he says. Tao's father had acted as a kind of protector for his relatives. And when he left Laos in 1975, and his relatives were accused of being communists, 
he wasn't there to help. One day, when Tao's uncles had gone to a neighboring village for salt, an area controlled by communists, they were captured, taken to the woods, and shot. Tao also knows this Hmong migration story is not the whole story, right? Because early on in his series, what he proposes is this. What if not all the Hmong leave China all those years ago? What if some of them don't go south to Laos and Vietnam and Thailand and Burma, but north, deeper into China, and are still around when the first emperor of China sends Shu Fu on his quest for immortality. In the label for his painting of Shu Fu's ships crossing the ocean, Tao says, the Hmong people who migrated to the north eventually crossed the ocean and ended up in Japan. They were servants, he says, on Shu Fu's ships, and when they got to Japan, they stayed. Let's go back one more time to about 300 BCE, the time of the first Chinese emperor, when Shu Fu sets out on his quest. If Shu Fu finds the elixir of life, he never comes back with it. The Chinese emperor dies at 49, possibly from drinking an elixir made by his alchemists. And if Shu Fu lands in Japan with 3,000 people, changing the course of Japanese history, this somehow doesn't show up in the history books for more than a thousand years. It's not until the early Middle Ages that a monk historian declares that Shufu found Mount Fuji and decided it was Penglai, the mysterious mountain with the Fountain of Youth. And so the legend begins. But... A thousand years after that, in the aftermath of World War II, many Japanese resist the idea that their country was founded by the Chinese. It's not politically popular, right? And there's really no direct evidence for it, despite all the Shufu tombs and statues and temples that cropped up around Japan. And then, in 2015, at a relatively obscure conference of the American Society of Human Genetics, a group of scholars present their paper detecting, for the first time, a wave of Hmong migration to Japan. The paper talks about assigning local ancestry based on the phased chromosomes of the mainland and Okinawa Japanese by performing RF mix. Well, you get the idea. The upshot is that the Hmong may have arrived in Japan a long, long time ago. In fact, around 300 BCE, right when the first Chinese emperor was on the throne. So the history books in Japan don't say this, or any history books, really or any living historians 
so what? There are lots of secret histories. Truths hidden by biases and beliefs and different experiences. Tao says that even today, Japanese visitors to Hmong villages in Southeast Asia, Thailand and Laos, mention that their ancestors were Hmong. Sometimes they claim they are Hmong. About 15 years ago, when Tao was beginning his political career in Minnesota, I visited a Hmong village in the hills of northern Thailand, Homes made of thatch on stilts. Kids in torn clothing. And I told the guide, who was Thai, You know, where I come from, in the United States, there are a lot of Hmong people. They're politicians now, and artists. A woman just became the first Hmong person to earn a PhD. And the guide said, No, that's not possible. These are the Hmong. They live like this. They have never been on a plane. They have no education. And I said, Well, I don't know about possible, but it's true. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial. I'm Tim Gehring. You can listen to The Object on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and ask for it on your smart speaker. Wherever you listen, leave us a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thanks very much for listening.